And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. of Wings for Breakfast, your twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer, and it's beginning to feel a lot like 2019-20. The Red Wings uh, going to Chicago for what was supposed to be a, a winnable series, if not a at least splittable series, uh, and they get destroyed. They, they lose both games by three or more. First game, they lose four to one. Second game, they lose uh, six to two. This was a Chicago team that we thought might be the worst team in the league, and if you get swept by the worst team in the league, Prashant, uh, what does that make you? I mean, my my expectations were low, but holy crap! I mean, you you got outscored ten to three in two games against a team that had given up five goals in each of their first four games. Uh, that that was something special. Uh, you know, I I think. I said this on the episode heading into the series that, you know, if you're Detroit, this was a, a chance to build some real momentum moving forward. You got two games against a team that was in shambles defensively, starting goaltenders that I've never heard of. Um, and and you had a chance to walk away with two wins and potentially a four and two record uh, coming out of the gate after splitting your series with Carolina and Columbus. And then you go and do that. Uh I don't know. I don't really know where we're at, but it, it certainly seems like you said, Max, that we're very much close to where we were last year with this team. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, it's it's hard to square what you saw in those first four games with with this series, and even on Friday night's game, where where I thought uh, you know it was lopsided. Certainly, I didn't think they they lacked uh, you know competitiveness or anything like that, and um, you know, I, I didn't think uh, they you know they were destroyed necessarily in that game. Like I thought, you know, I think at even strength, they might've even won the expected goals battle in that game. I didn't think they did enough, but I didn't think it was a, a disaster outcome necessarily. Um, this, however, six to two, you know, the power play gets on track. It's almost the, the uncurling of the uh, monkey's paw or whatever, whatever that uh, idiom is where, you know, the, the Red Wings needed to improve power play. Well, they scored two power play goals, but just about every other area of the game, um, Chicago took it to them. Yeah. And, you know, you're exactly right. The Friday game, it, it was mostly okay. I mean, there were at times, you know, you could see the wings kind of get caved in a little bit. But really, that was the kind of game that I think we had kind of, you know, were expecting to happen this year. Whereas, you know, the team is competitive at five on five and special teams was ultimately going to decide the game. You know, the wings go for five on the power play in that Friday night game. Blackhawks go two for five. And, and that's really the difference uh, on the scoreboard. Um, but the, the game on Sunday, I think, was 
a basically a, a screaming reminder of last year. Uh, you know, it's a tight game in the second period. It's two to one. And you have a bad giveaway with just a couple minutes left by Anthony Manta that gives the Blackhawks a 3-1 lead, you know, going into the third period. And then again, you know, another bad defensive play by Manta in the first minute of the third period. And all of a sudden it's 4-1. to And, you know, very quickly that game gets out of hand to the point where, uh, you know, in the third period there at 5-on-5, five five, the Blackhawks outshot the, the Red Wings 17-7, to including nine high-danger chances by natural stat tricks definition to one for the Red Wings. And so that was the kind of game where, you know, the the, the doors got blown open and that was very reminiscent of, of last season. And so, you know, when you kind of step back and take stock of this, you go, yeah, okay, you had one competitive game that, that came away with a loss, but then the next one was even worse. And this was against a team that I think both you and I thought was arguably the worst team in hockey. Yeah, and I've got a little a little bit of patience for the third goal, uh, the Mantha turnover up the middle, because it, it came off a play where he back-checked, he breaks up a chance, and then it's just really a, a bad clearing attempt up the middle. Like I think that's maybe worth a little more you know, grace or whatever you want to call it. it it's the fourth goal where he's in the crease with, uh, I don't even know who it was, was it Khrushchev? Uh, I mean, that was, uh, that was Yanmark. Janmark, you're right. Yeah, Janmark. Yeah. And Mantha's yeah. right there on him. And, you know, I think he tried to put his stick down over Janmark's to block him. Really needed to be a more aggressive tie up, and Janmark just tucks it in there. And, and that really, uh, at, at that point, makes it 4 1. The Red Wings do come back to score another later on, but it just, you know, that was kind of the game in my mind. It, you're down three goals at that point in the third period. And, you know, you know this is not a Red Wings team that has the firepower to catch up and, and especially right now. And so we'll, we'll come back to the Mantha stuff later on, but I want to start with, uh, with kind of the state of where these guys are at lineup wise. And, uh, you know, before the series even begins, the Red Wings lose, uh, Philip Zadina, who had been one of their few offensive, uh, kind of bright spots so far early in this season, obviously already without Robbie Fabry, Adam Ernie, Sam Gagne, and John Merrill. So really that's five guys, four of them. That's 80% of power play too, actually, now that you think about it. Um, that's a problem, but how much of this do you, uh, kind of attribute to those losses? How big a deal are those losses? Uh, and, and anything else on that topic stick out to you? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a big deal when you compare this team to last year's team. I mean, those guys are arguably that quote unquote scoring depth that we thought the Red Wings would have this year that would kind of shake up, uh, and kind of get them out of that crux of last year where they just couldn't score goals whatsoever. So obviously losing a guy like Zadina, who had been uh, really good, you know, kind of on both sides of the puck to start, you know, John Merrill had been a, you know, very nice surprise to start. And then, you know, Sam Gagne had quietly been very steady in the bottom six, you know, to lose all three of those guys right before the start of the series uh, definitely is impactful. But I mean, when Jeff Blaschel was asked about it, he said, I've still got 20 guys that are very capable of winning a hockey game. And he's not wrong. I mean, Sure, the lineup on, on Friday night's a little weird where they go 11 and 7 and they activate Biega and, uh, you know, play Larkin 25 minutes. But that's still a lineup capable of beating the worst team in the league uh, in Chicago. And then similarly on, on Sunday, now they bring in uh, Taro Hirose, who I thought was fantastic. Giovanni Smith, who I thought was good. That's still a lineup capable of winning these games. And so there's no excuses here, even though you do lose some of those really capable guys, uh, they brought in guys who can make those plays and and it just simply didn't happen and, and you had a, a 
basically a rerun of last year. Yeah, I agree with that. I think even without some of those guys, this should this should have been a winnable situation, especially going up against a goalie who had made one NHL start in his career. And, uh, you know, in, in hindsight, game one, I might have been a little too harsh on uh, on the Red Wings for not making it hard enough on Lankin. And when you go back and look again, there were some just big-time saves he made. Uh, but overall, for the weekend, to come away on a, on a goalie making his second and third career starts, you get three goals. Man, I, I, against a team that you know defensively was giving up so much and, and had, give, had averaged five goals against for their season coming in, man, this was just not enough. It's not even that the Chicago you know, goaltending provided something outstanding. I mean, if you look at the games played, uh, it's not like the Red Wings mustered up a whole lot. Even if you go back and you look at the game, yes, he made a couple of good saves on Friday night, but for the game, the Wings come up with 1.88 expected goals for at 5-on-5. That's still uh, well below the league average of 2.15. So you're not even at league average, you know, quality of chances. And then you follow it up on Sunday with 1.25 uh, there. And that's the Wings' fourth game of the season with 1.25 or fewer expected goals for. And so they just didn't test him hardly at all. You know, there's probably three or four good chances. I think, you know, you go back to the game on Sunday, there was an opportunity where uh, I think the game is still relatively tight and Dylan Larkin makes a similar move to the move that he makes on Friday night, but is unable to stuff that puck in. You know, the the Chicago goaltender is able to keep his pad on the ice, keep that puck out of the net. You know, maybe that changes it up, but he just was not tested enough on Sunday. He did get a couple of tests on Friday, but still nowhere near enough to really say you put some effort in here. I mean, for Chicago, they had to be enjoying how little offense Detroit really was able to muster, um, especially consistent offense in that consistent pressure kind of in the shift after shift. Uh, mentality that Detroit had been able to bring against Columbus in just the games prior. So, you know, really disappointing to see that the Wings weren't able to do that. And no, I don't think the guys being out uh, is really any excuse for that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So let's drill down then on that a little bit and on the offense because you make a great point about just not generating enough at, at five on five. What are you seeing from your standpoint um, that that is leading to that because I think when the Red Wings, uh, you know, their mo for this is they they didn't want to after Friday night's game they didn't want to force as many plays they didn't want to be uh, trying to, to do something that wasn't there I I think Jeff Blashell would have probably sounded like from the press conference just see them kind of 
play with, you know, more pressure and, and kind of that, you know, pucks behind your defender, your, your opposing defender's mentality. Is it that, that that wasn't there enough or is it something else in your mind? Yeah, I, I don't have the numbers to necessarily back up, but uh, I think I'm picking up visually. But the biggest difference for me is the forecheck of the Red Wings is almost non-existent. I think mm. the pressure on opposing, on kind of the opposition's defensemen to make those tougher zone exits simply isn't there. I mean, you go back and you rerun the tape at 5-on-5 five five against Chicago, against Columbus, against Carolina. It's real crisp and easy zone exits every single time. It's two or three passes out of the zone, able to connect, uh, not tough enough in the neutral zone, really since, uh, you know, the first game against Carolina when I thought Detroit did a great job in the neutral zone, kind of making it difficult for for Carolina to come through there with speed. In reality, you go back and you look at the tape on Sunday against the Blackhawks, and it's odd man rushes from the center line in. Uh, It's three-on-ones, two-on-ones, a lot of odd number scenarios. And then, you know, by the third period in, in the Chicago game, I think their end zone defensive coverage was in shambles. Guys were not getting passed off appropriately. There was kind of one scenario, I want to say it was maybe midway through the third period with Bobby Ryan and his line mates. And maybe it's a lack of familiarity with some of these guys playing on lines that hadn't really been together a whole lot. But they're, they're, it's Bobby Ryan pointing at one of his teammates and the other guy's pointing back at him. And they're not sure who's passing off the guys at the point. Uh, as the puck getting moved side to side. And so it's just, it's things, it's mistakes that shouldn't be made by a professional hockey team right now. Um, But I think it comes down to kind of those two key things for me, not tough enough on the forecheck in terms of pressuring the zone exits. And then the end zone D coverage is just, just not where it needs to be. I think the the D coverage thing is going to be something that the Red Wings kind of live and die by as this season goes. And uh, one reason why I think it's going to be dying by a lot more often is because this season, more than any other, the NHL already doesn't get to practice a whole lot just because of the game schedule. There's going to be even fewer this year, not just because of how cramped it is, but because as you're going through some of these protocol situations, it's going to be harder and harder to, to find that time where you can get your whole team, not just on the ice at once, you know, the other day they practiced uh, uh, with, with four small groups that you could not really do any game situations in, um, but also just you're going to be working guys in and out of the lineup in, in, in that in that uh, per, with, with relative frequency throughout this year. And so it's a bad time to be a team that relies a ton on shutting the other team down to win, and that's what the Red Wings are. And so this comes down to to that with me a lot. I mean, I think that um, not just not being able to practice, but just they're they're a team that's built to win on really sound structure and efficiency. And if you're if you are not kind of firing on all cylinders, and and part of this does come back to the compete too. I mean, I think anyone would tell you that the Red Wings weren't um, up to snuff there on on Sunday, but those two factors combined, you know, those are the two areas where you have to check both those boxes for them to win a given game. And it's not going to guarantee them to win if they do, but those are that that's really their only path right now is, is by checking both those boxes. One of them is going to be harder than usual to check. And uh, the other one, they did not do nearly enough to, to hold up their end. So uh, I think as much as I thought coming into this series, that this was a, a at least splittable, if not winnable outright two two game series for them. Um, this to me looks like a really bad omen, even though it's just one series. Uh, I, I think that's a really bad sign for them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the lack of practice, uh, point you bring up is key. And then especially for the wings having, 
you know, a lot of new faces, having all these COVID-related absences that are going to just have guys kind of shuffling in and shuffling out. You know, I think that that's definitely um, going to create some of these issues. And if you go back and you roll the tape on on a lot of these wings goals against at five on five, it is simply missed coverages. You go back to the first Pius Suter goal where he's kind of wide open on the backside for a rebound. Well, you know, the wings make a line change right before that. Dylan Larkin comes on, but then there's a complete kind of absence. And maybe this is intentional where the wings are trying to overload on the puck side or not. But but nobody pays attention to Suter, who is just camped out on the backside, whether that should be the wings defenseman's responsibility, whether Larkin shouldn't have stepped up, whether there should have been another shift. You know, that's there. We've talked about the Manta, you know, lack of a play on on, on Janmark's stick when he knows Janmark is right behind him. And, you know, for Red Wings fans to watch that, that play basically brings up visions of the 2008 Stanley Cup final where you, you remember Henrik Zetterberg recognizing Crosby's stick before that puck gets to Crosby and, and on the five on three and Zetterberg comes down hard on the stick. It's just like that's the play that's flashing in my mind. And then you just see that there where same thing, Mantha misses that coverage, doesn't make it happen. You know, and then on Suter's hat trick, you have the same deal, a bad chase in the neutral zone leads to a two-on-one defender, Mark Stahl slides, and, and, and now you have Suter scoring the hat trick there. So it's, it's, it's a huge, huge problem. And you're right, Max, I don't know how it gets fixed when you don't have time to really practice uh, and incorporate a lot of these guys in. Yeah, it, it's going to be uh, it's it's going to be something that I think they face often this season, and that that does not bode well for them at all. Just to to wrap up on on this personnel thing and this COVID uh, topic, because well, not that we're going to ever really wrap it up this year, but um, so now where the Red Wings are at, they they have Giovanni Smith and Tarharosi, who you mentioned earlier, are now in Darren Helm who is available, just did not play today, um, presumably with some kind of day-to-day injury, but I, I don't believe that's COVID. He, he was on the COVID list, at least. Um, and then Christian Juice is kind of the new guy who who just joined for this series. Those are kind of the bodies coming in. And then you've also got Riley Barber moved on to the taxi squad. So that tells you where the margins are at now for the Red Wings. I know, uh, you know I certainly saw plenty of people in my mentions throughout the game today wondering about when when guys like, uh, you know, Franz Nielsen might not be in the lineup anymore. The answer is as long as this level of COVID decimation is in play, that is just not happening. You're not going to take Franz Nielsen out for Riley Barber. And and I know people, uh, you know, I, and I frankly, I thought Nielsen had one of the turnovers that led to one of the Red Wings goals today. Um, it, it just doesn't matter. You're not going to take him out of the lineup for Riley Barber, given how, how banged up they are or, or how, uh, you know, COVID protocol hampered they are. So, um, that's kind of where they're at. It's just going to be like this for a while. I mean, the, the, the timeline for when some of these guys might return is obviously a factor there yet. You've had now six days, I believe for Fabry and Ernie, since they were added to the protocol list. Um, I, it's 10 days. Is that, am I right about that? 10 days where you, you can't, uh, be around the team. And then there's another four or something like that, where, no physical activity, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. If you've tested positive, and I believe you're you're symptomatic, um, then you have a ten day period where you can't, um, you know, you have to be quarantined. And then at that point, you know, they're making they're ensuring that you're uh, symptom free, uh, you've been fever free, none of those issues. Then you kind of have another four days where you're not allowed to exert yourself kind of whatsoever. And then you have, are required to have cardiologist clearance 
um, for these guys to then come back. And that's, again, assuming that they've tested positive, symptomatic, all of that. They could be on this COVID protocol because of close um, contact exposure, although the further out we get and the fact that they're not being removed, that maybe makes that a little less likely. Uh, but, you know, then after those 14 days, you get activated. Then you've got to give, you know, another handful of days. I think Blaschel says, you know, he's kind of estimating 18 to 21 days these guys are going to be out if they are positive test related um, and, and going out. So, you know, it could be painful for the Red Wings for a while if you're looking at potentially another two weeks without, you know, Fabry and Ernie and potentially another two and a half weeks without, you know, Gagne, Zadina, Merrill pending on, you know, the reason they're on that COVID list. Yeah, I think the point that he made the other day was if uh, in a normal year you miss a couple of days due to illness and then you're kind of back in the swing. With this year, being even just on that protocol list is basically going to be like having a not insignificant injury and in how much time you're going to miss. You think about Anthony Mantha's uh, like knee injury that he had the other year. I think he missed about three or four weeks. Like it's going on that protocol list is is like having an injury uh, of that magnitude of that timeline. Uh, and so for the Red Wings to be on it to this degree already does not bode well for them getting a good start, and you know really does not bode well for for them this season any year that they were going to need a good start to really make much of any noise. So um, I think that's where things are at on on the COVID list. I know people have also been wondering if if the Hurricanes have five people on the list and the Red Wings have five people on the list, why why are the Hurricanes canceling games and the Red Wings not? The answer is that it's not a numerical threshold. It's not like once you get to five, they shut it down. It's a case by case basis based on each team's situation. I would take this to mean that the Red Wings have a less, uh, you know, imposing situation on their hands than the Hurricanes do. Is that a fair read? Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect it's somewhat related to how the contact tracing goes and potentially sure. in the case of the Hurricanes, you know, again, this is this is purely a speculation here, which I, I, I hate to do, but potentially you had maybe more guys who were close contacts to the guys that, you know, tested positive. And now you run the risk that a lot that if you play that game and you have a lot of guys who could be potential future positives, you know, playing that you could have a huge outbreak on your hands, whereas you know, maybe in the Red Wings case in, in kind of conjunction with, uh, you know, the league and, and kind of whoever's doing contact tracing for the Red Wings, maybe they, they say, hey, we don't think we have a lot of guys who are, you know, close proximity. And therefore, you know, even if one or two pop up, maybe it's not, uh, you know, a huge deal. Uh, I don't know. That's kind of maybe one way to read it. Uh, otherwise, you know, uh, another way to read it is there's something else going on that yeah. uh, the league kind of deemed, hey, we need to kind of curb this in Carolina, uh, potentially because maybe the wing, uh, they're attributing the wing spread to the Carolina spread um, or, you know, something else beyond that. So that's one possible explanation, and we don't know what it is, but just to kind of give people an idea of of, of how the differences come into play is that it, it's not a, you check these three boxes, you hit this numerical threshold, you shut down. It's the league is going to look at this on an individual holistic basis and decide that so far they have not made that call for the Red Wings. Okay. Uh, I want to transition though back into the series for, for a minute here. We'll, we'll wrap this one up and then we'll get into some of the, the hot button stuff, especially coming off a of game two. But just to, to close the door on, on the first game of this series, the Red Wings obviously lose four to one. Uh, Dylan Larkin with the only goal. It was a very nice goal. It's a goal that's not going to get, uh, really much uh, time in the sun because of the outcome of the game there. Um, but the Red Wings ultimately, um, they get blown out, but they ended up with about 55% of both the attempts and the expected goals at five on five. The special teams, however, 
was kind of a disaster. Red Wings go 0 for 5. Uh, Chicago, they not only did they give up, uh, did they not score, they give up an empty net goal or, uh, yeah, an empty net, right? Shorthanded goal to, to Janmark, I think. Right. Uh, on on their power play toward the end of uh, game one, and then the Chicago Chicago power play scores two power play goals just to really uh you know drive the nail in there about special teams being the story of that game. Yeah, I think uh, you can't. We had talked about it enough, you know, coming into uh, the Sunday game, you know, uh, well, really coming into the series, the Wings were already one for seven on the power play and had been averaging 0.8 shots on goal per for kind of two minutes of power play time, which is just, you know, absolutely abysmal. And then again, you know, they go up against Chicago in that first game, put just nine shots on goal on five power play attempts, no semblance really of a threat whatsoever. And then to make matters worse, you know, as they're pressing late in the game when Chicago's got a 3-1 lead, um, you know, a curious coaching decision where uh, I think Blaschel pulls Thomas Grice uh, when there's a puck battle uh, with about 20 seconds left on the Red Wings power play, that puck battle actually goes to Chicago, who then, you know, Yanmark's able to to close out that empty netter and, and put the game out of reach at four to one. But just just not enough on special teams, especially when you're talking about the Wings needing special teams to be the difference maker. You give up two power play goals and a shorthanded goal, and you score nothing yourself. So just simply not good enough. Yeah, and I think whereas the problem early in the season just seemed to be getting set up and, and getting the entering the zone cleanly and getting into position, uh, that game, to me, the problem was kind of more sloppiness and, and maybe more puck management for the Red Wings. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people mention the lack of movement on the Red Wings power play. Typically, um, I, I think that that can be kind of a small sample thing of like it happened one or two times and, you know, you, you're going to extrapolate it and say it's the whole thing. Um, but I did think that night that, you know, that might've been part of it. And I didn't think the decisions were, were quick or crisp enough on where to move the puck. You know, ultimately the Red Wings come back the next game and, and score a couple power play goals. I didn't think they looked worlds better, but better nonetheless, they scored a couple goals. And so, uh, you know, I think that probably takes a little bit of the heat off and statistically will make it look uh, a little better. And so I think people are going to have to to balance that, right? Like the, uh, it's kind of the, the baseball thing of like, you know, most of the time you're not going to get a hit. And, and Jeff Blasher made this point that the Oilers power play last year was one of the best in modern history, sitting at right about 25%. So a one for four a day on the power play is good. Um, but in, just in terms of how it looks, I haven't been all that impressed so far this year. Yeah, I think the Red Wings power play has been atrocious, really, to, to, to put it nicely. Um, you know, I think there's a couple of things to point out here as we talk about the power play. I think in that first game on Friday, you know, you're absolutely right, Max. I think the script almost flipped where they actually really abandoned the drop pass. Uh, I went back and rewatched all the power plays of that game just because I've got a morbid curiosity with the Red Wings power <laughs> play. And, and they only attempted the drop pass a single time. And actually that one single attempt resulted in a, a mini breakaway against because Larkin got his pocket picked. Uh, but thankfully, you know, Grice was able to bail him out. Uh, but they actually went to this kind of center cut entry that resulted in them actually getting into the zone, maintaining possession. But then that's where kind of the lack of movement came in to play. And so with the top power play unit, you know, for years and years and years, the Wings have played this 1-3-1 uh, unit, probably for the better part of the last five years, where you've got kind of one guy stationed up top in the middle of the ice at the blue line. You've got then a row of three guys as you move towards the net, one guy on each faceoff dot, another guy in the slot, and then you usually have your net front player. That's that 1-3-1 setup. Wings had used that for a long time, 
Um, but then they kind of went to this umbrella formation where instead of having the guy in the slot, you almost have a second net front guy just on the other side of the net. And what that led to was essentially the wings passing the puck around the perimeter of the Blackhawks penalty kill with no significant threats to the net. Um, almost all of the shots were either high from the point. Um, there were no passing lanes set up. And it ultimately basically allowed the Blackhawks to defend the power play without even having to move their feet, uh, which is something you never want to do. It just was not taxing at all to them. Uh, and so it's kind of a peculiar coaching decision to go to that. Obviously, Tyler Bertuzzi is kind of adept around the net. Bobby Ryan is also adept around the net. But usually the Wings like to have a guy drift up into the slot uh, to to open up some more passing lanes, and that just wasn't happening in that first game. Yeah, so I, I think special teams were the were the cause of death in game one. Moving into game two, uh, I think it was really more five on five than anything else. I think it was just across the board. Everything yeah, looked well. atrocious, right? That might have been the worst Red Wings game in some time. Um, and I'm saying that, that that's saying a lot. That felt like. The game against the Leafs last year where the Wings lost 6 nothing. That felt like the game against Minnesota where the Wings lost 8-1. to That felt like those games. And I was sincerely anticipating, at least this year, we weren't going to have games that felt like that. That just felt like, you know, the, the whole house had collapsed and there was no more effort being made. But uh, at, at times in that third period, it just felt like the Blackhawks were pouring it on and the Red Wings had absolutely no answers so i think that was kind of an across the board i don't know what to say anymore as you've probably heard by now we've teamed up with betmgm this season we'll be using betmgm lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week if you haven't signed up for betmgm yet use bonus code the athletic and you'll get a one-year subscription to the athletic plus up to a fifteen hundred dollar first bet offer on your first wager with betmgm here's how it works Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We talked before the season about the Red Wings needing to, in order to kind of get this thing on track, we knew they weren't going to win a lot, but in order to get this this thing back on track, they needed to cut down on two things, losing streaks and blowout losses, which we kind of def- defined as losses by three or more goals. So the first four games of the year, they lost one goal by three, and that was off an empty netter in, in part. 
Uh, now here we are six games into the season. They've lost half of their games and three quarters of their losses by three or more goals. And yes, empty netters are a factor. They were, they were a factor in the first game the other night, but not tonight. And, and at the end of the day, it's always going to play a part. And if you're down two goals to give up an empty netter, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, a three goal loss does not uh, really sell you all that short. So I ask you this is, at this point, half their games by three goal losses. Is this a big, uh, a big picture problem, or is this a isolated one series got away that they can rebound from as they now go into Dallas, which Stanley Cup coming off Stanley Cup run, but also without two of their big guns up front? Yeah, it's. I think that's the million dollar question right now. Um, you know, while the scoreboard was close uh, for the Red Wings in most of their games this season, uh, the five on five numbers still didn't bear it out. Against Carolina, their expected goals for percentages were 33.5% and 33.2%, right? So even though the scoreboard looked good and they were able to win that second Carolina game, they got the rolly out classed at 5-on-5. Five five. The Columbus series went better. I thought they actually outplayed Columbus in the first game. Coincidentally, they lose that one. And then they were at least able to play Columbus to a draw at 5-on-5 five five in the second game, and they come away with that overtime win there. You know, the Chicago series, they they come out ahead 5-on-5 five five in the first game and then get absolutely waxed here in the second game. In fact, that was their worst 5-on-5 five five game of the season uh, by expected goals for percentage coming in at just 31%, um, which is worse than either of the first two Carolina games. So it's kind of what, what, what are the Red Wings? What is it Jekyll? Is it Hive? Like, is this the team that can be competitive at 5-on-5? Five five? Or is this the team that, doesn't it, that's just not going to show up at five on five. You've kind of got half the games of the season saying that they, yes, they are competitive at five on five and half of them saying they're going to get absolutely trucked at five on five. So I think the jury is still out on what this team is going to be, but it's certainly not a good sign to have your worst five on five game of the season against arguably the worst team in the league. Well, and honestly, after that, you, you can't say Chicago is the worst team in the league because you can't say that, that Detroit is not the worst team in the league coming off. It might be the next worst. These might be, we might be looking at the two worst teams in the league. Uh, and it's a really bad sign if you're an aggregate of seven goals in two games behind the next worst team in the league. That's what defined 2019-20. And if that's going to be the case again, it's a long year. And, and you know, this is kind of one of those worries of, if it gets out of hand early, that's a big, big problem because you already know how how rough it's going to be for these guys going on the road and maintaining morale. In you know, so, you know, it, it's not it's not the bubble, but it might honestly be more isolating on the road because these guys can't even get together and and, and have dinner together or, or just spend time together to build each other up. It, it's if it, if it gets away, then those road trips are going to start to get really, really lonely. Yeah, I, I think this is this is a big turning point really for the wings early on. I think they have a lot to figure out because there is no rescue squad coming. There's no cavalry coming. Unlike, you know, getting a guy back from injury, like we talked about earlier, uh, you, you don't have that coming for a while. We expect that those guys on the COVID list, if they are there because of positive tests, uh, are going to be two to three weeks away. And so this team is going to have to figure it out quickly and they're still on the road. I mean, they're going to Dallas next for a couple of games, um, and they don't get to come back until next week. And so if you go to Dallas against kind of the, the Western Conference champions from last year and get absolutely clean again, now you're coming back home and you're two and six. And that's that's very quickly going to get away from you. So 
I think the wings have to figure out some way to stem the tide, some way to slam the brakes, some way to not let this mentality get there. And I think it, I kind of come back to what Bobby Ryan said when he first signed with the wings, when he called Dylan Larkin and said, are these guys, you know, do are these guys down on themselves? Are they going to be able to keep their heads up on the bench? Are we going to be able to get through it? And I think he's a guy you're going to have to look to, to make sure he's the guy who's different. He's the guy who's going to be able to say, we're not going to do this. We're going to come out differently. And and maybe he and Dylan Larkin can find a way to get this team turned around. 100%. And I think it's going to come down a lot to those two guys. Larkin, by the way, I thought has been excellent the whole season. He's, you know, not just because he's sitting at a point per game. I thought he's, he's driven it for them. He's been easily the most noticeable Red Wing uh, pretty much the whole season, certainly through this series. I think even today in a blowout loss, I think his expected goals was either high 50s or maybe even into the 60s. And and that's saying something, especially, um, you know, he still had Tyler Bertuzzi on his wing, who I thought is right up there for, for the best Red Wing so far this year. But he was also playing with Matthias Brome, a guy who really started this year on the Red Wing's fourth line. Um, and, and so I, I think that says a lot that, that Larkin's been able to maintain that level. He's drawing penalties left and right. I don't think evolving hockey's uh, goals above replacement are up yet, but I'm very curious to see uh, where Larkin comes in once that does get posted, because uh, in part because of his drawn penalties, in addition to the possession stats, the quality stats, and of course, the production stats. Yeah, I mean, they, they just put their model up today, so I would just oh. I would uh, I would actually dissuade anyone from looking at it <laughs> since it's only been you know five games for a lot of these games. But you know, to your point, they have him twenty second in his ability to draw penalties. When you're looking at that, uh, they have him twenty second in the league there. Uh, overall, doesn't grade out super great so far. But again, it's been five games, and you have to remember that you know D- Detroit still hasn't been outstanding in, in a handful of those. Um, But yeah, I mean, you have to look at uh, Dylan Larkin as the key. I mean, uh, he is the workhorse. He's the guy driving it. I mean, you take Bertuzzi off of Larkin's line for a game and he struggles. You put him back on Larkin's line and he's got an 82 percent five and five expected goals for percentage and scores two power play goals. You know, you move Brome up. Brome is a guy who had been sitting at 36 percent at five and five expected goals for you move him up to play with Larkin. He's at 64 percent. It's 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 Dylan Larkin's the guy who drives the bus, and he is showing it, you know, very much like Henrik Zetterberg before him and Nick Lidstrom before him and Steve Eisman before that, that he's going to lead by his on-ice play. And so now you just have to hope that the other guys can follow suit, they can rally behind him, and that he continues to keep this up throughout the season. Because you're right, Max, I mean, he's, he's the MVP, and he's going to have to continue to be the MVP even though these times are going to be tough. Yep, absolutely. All right, um, let's get into the mailbag here. There were a lot of questions. Uh, I think we just spent some time answering the first one, which was from USA Goalie 29, which is, are the Red Wings the worst team in the league again? Uh, I would not have said yes a week ago. I would say a resounding yes after that. Yeah, you can't not say that. And Ottawa has looked good. And I thought yep. they were another candidate. The Kings New have Jersey looked looks fine. fine. New yep. Jersey looks fine. New Jersey barely has a goaltender and they look fine. Yep. You know, it's 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 insane but we're back to where we were last year i think yeah the only team that i think is having uh, is, is more angry than the red wings fan base right now is vancouver and i think they're gonna maybe not right the ship but uh they're certainly not gonna fall into uh quite the same problems that the red wings are having yeah yeah uh, vancouver's gonna figure it out Pedersen's gonna figure it out you know I, I wouldn't be worried about any of that so i think they'll miss the playoffs but they're not gonna be uh where detroit's at in the standings that you're oh yeah, yeah yeah i'm with you there i think they also missed the playoffs uh i think that north division you're probably 
It's going to be interesting who gets that fourth spot. But, uh, uh, yeah, Vancouver is definitely not in the same conversation as Detroit right now. Yep. All right. Uh, The next topic, and there's not really one that sticks out among these, but a lot of Anthony Mantha-related questions, a lot of Anthony Mantha-related grievances. Through two games, we said, give him some time. Through six games, uh, it isn't getting a whole lot better. I thought there were a couple flashes against Columbus, uh, but... Tonight in particular, this afternoon in particular, uh, it was not very good, and, and he did not play much in the third period. It, it, what seemed like a non-coincidental, non-coincidental uh, outcome after that play that we mentioned earlier in the crease, allowing um, Jan Mark to score, he, you know, it was an effort, but it was not the kind of effort that I think you, you were looking to see, you would hope to see. And so I, I'll ask it to you. I don't have the answer for you here, but what stands out? What's going on with Anthony Mantha? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you there, Max, right? I mean, we said two games, and I mean, I, I'm probably arguably one of the biggest Anthony Mantha kind of, you know, supporters in that sense. I do think he has been Detroit's most skilled player the last couple of years, and statistically, he always grades out that way. The fact of the matter is six games in now, and six games is now a significant sample size in a season that's only 56 games. You've passed 10% of the season. Um, now now you're sitting here and you look at him and you're going, what is wrong? I mean, it was two consecutive defensive gaffes by him. Obviously, the first one, like we talked about, not as, you know, not as critical, or I shouldn't say not as much his fault with the sweeping play that led to the, the Hawks' third goal. But then, yeah, I mean, he absolutely comes out and makes a, an even more egregious error um, to give Yanmark, uh, you know, that that goal at, at the start of the third period that absolutely, you know, set the Red Wings back. And so I, I don't know what the answer is here. Um, the guy got one shift after that, yeah. and, and that was rightly deserved. I mean, I don't know how you could look at that and say, yeah, he deserves to continue playing. I mean, he got one shift with the fourth line uh, and, then, and then didn't play the rest of the game, and I think that's fair. Um, I don't have answers. I, I don't know. I mean, could there be some lingering injury? I don't know. Is his conditioning not there? I don't know. I don't know why it wouldn't be there. Um, you know, given that they did, you've already gone through training camp, hasn't missed any time. Obviously, you know, not practicing isn't there. It's not like he needs capable line mates around him to drive play. He's he's done it himself. You know, for the better part of his career. So I don't have any answers here. But it's got to get fixed quickly. Uh, because otherwise this season is going to get away from him and uh, Detroit's going to have to make some tough decisions after that. He's not a guy that the Red Wings as currently constructed can win without him being on. I mean, and that's not even saying like he's got to be at 80% of his game or he has to be better than he was tonight. He has to be like on, he has to be 90, 95% of his best uh, for them to win on any given night because he's that important to what they do. He's the focal point of their top power play unit. Um, he's he's probably the most unique player they have in terms of what he can do with his skill, his intelligence, his size, and his speed when he's really going. I think Dylan Larkin is their most important player. He's he's the engine, and I think you can make some similar cases about Tyler Bertuzzi and, and a unique skill set he brings in really the hard areas of the ice. There's not an area of the ice that Anthony Mantha can't excel in and, you know, he's the guy that they experimented with on the penalty kill through training camp. So it, it, this is really befuddling to me because it, it, by all indications, this looked like it was going to be the year that Anthony Mantha really, you know, if, as long as he stayed healthy, uh, put himself on the map. I'm not saying it's too late for it to be that, 
Uh, we're still very early into this. We're, we're like two weeks into this. But, man, this is not the start that anybody would have envisioned for him. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just kind of speechless here because when you go and you find a good Anthony Mantha game, go back and watch you know, yeah. the, the opener from last year where he scores four goals against the Stars. When he's moving, he's one of the top 10 wingers in the game, bar none. I, I will 100% get behind when he's moving his feet and he is engaged in the game. He is 100% one of the top 10 wingers in hockey. We were talking about this last year. At times, he was grading out as one of the top five wingers in hockey. And so the skill is very clearly there. Something is going on. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to speculate what it is, but bottom line, you're now past 10% of the season. He's got to figure it out because he is he is what's going to separate Detroit from being dead last for sure versus making some steps forward um, and building off of last year. The next question is from uh, Iserplan, who wants to know about Jeff Blaschel. And, and now that he has a talent upgrade on the roster, he says, I'd imagine if there's more of these blowouts, Eisenman has to consider firing him right. Now, my first response to that is, uh, hold on with the talent thing, because that was true two weeks ago, and then you kind of went back to where you were at last year again because of these COVID efforts. Like I said, 80% of power play two gets taken off, uh, four top nine, four top nine, or no, three top nine forwards, and a a top four defenseman, or or depending on how their usage was, I think Merrill was probably the fifth defenseman or something like that. Um, I think the roster's basically back in the talent shape that it was at a year ago. I mean, at the end of training camp, um, you would not have had Nielsen, Rasmussen, Smith, or Hiroshi in the lineup. All four were in there uh, tonight. And while I think you can make a case that Rasmussen, until tonight or until today, had looked like he maybe deserved uh, to be, I'm not ready to say that without Zadina and Fabry that the talent on this roster is all that upgraded. However, I don't think that takes away from the crux of Iserplan's question which is if there's more of these blowouts, does Steve Eiserman uh, need to consider making a change there? I know what I think, and I'll get into that, but I want to let you start here because I've talked for the last like two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a tough question. This is, you know, pragmatically, let's let's take a step back and look. This is Blasio's last, last year. If you do fire him, I have to wonder, I don't know this for sure, but what is the COVID protocol to bring someone from outside? in to coach this game, this team. I don't know if that someone has to quarantine for a certain amount of period before they could, you know, join the roster to to be the head coach. Oh, certainly I, they would have to. Right. Certainly and so, so, you know, then you're going to be in that kind of weird scenario where uh, you may be without the person you've hired for 14 days, which is a significant, you know, chunk of time this season. Uh, so if that's the case, and that's a little... Um, interesting. And then if you do fire him and you choose to, you know, go from within, uh, who are you promoting? I mean, a lot of people talk about Dan Bilesma, but the same people who talk about Dan Bilesma being the head coach are also the same people railing against the Red Wings power play that he's coaching. And so it's like, I don't know, are you really going to get any different results um, with them? And sure, you can make the argument that, well, anything is better than what I'm watching right now. I think it could be worse. I don't think this is rock bottom. I think it actually could be worse. And so my my kind of opinion would be, I don't think you're going to be able to do anything meaningful this year. Let Blashill finish out the year. Give him, give him the opportunity to right the ship in any regard. But I just don't see a huge 
benefit in pulling the trigger here unless you think what he's doing is detrimental to the development of some of the young guys, which again, you know, I've kind of made this case on here as big of a person as I am about not supporting Blashill systems to a certain extent. A lot of the young players, including Dylan Larkin and Anthony Mantha and Tyler Bertuzzi, took big steps forward underneath him. So I, I think Philip it would Zadina. take a lot. Yeah, Philip Zadina as well. I think it would take a lot for me to pull the plug mid-season. I think after the season, have at it. But I think mid-season, I just don't see the benefit here. There is zero benefit. I mean, this is not a decision that, you know, I I realize that I think people want something to happen so that it feels like something is happening. And and I can recognize that. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I understand. But you guys... Dan Bilesma is not an upgrade here. Like you, you've seen, he, he's in charge of the power play. That's arguably been one of the two or three worst things about the Red Wings so far this season, dating back really both of the season, both of the other seasons that he's been here too. That's not a good option, period. I mean, it, it, you, you can't do that. It's not going to help. Uh, also, the Red Wings are already short-staffed on their coaching staff. They're, they're coaching with two assistant coaches this year. They never replaced Adam Nightingale. You'd be having Dan Bilesma and Doug Huda, and that is it for for at least a couple weeks there. That's just a huge, huge liability. Um, so that's the pragmatic side to, to, to what you to, to your point. You're, you're dead on about that. Number two, you're also I, I agree completely that people act like this cannot get worse. The Red Wings brought it for you know at least uh, you know half of the, you know th- three quarters of their first four games. I thought, and really, I thought they brought it Friday night too. Um, I thought that they they had been totally fine for the first five games of the season until today. Uh, you know, people can make what they will of the system, but I, I, I also have a really hard time arguing against it's it is the only system that's gonna lead them to a chance to win this year. It's not gonna be the one that helped them score the most goals, but this is not a team that can win in shootouts. It, that if you wanna know what it'll be like if they try to win the shootouts. The answer is today because the defensive coverage was really not there. And if it is not 100% on, that's what it looks like. So uh, I I fully understand that the frustration here by people and, and the answer is not going to be to, to make a change in season this season. It will surprise me if any team makes a coaching change this season for the reasons that we outlined about the quarantine. The Red Wings among the, the the most surprising of them because they're already short-staffed on the coaching staff and because we've already seen them go through a year that was as bad as it can get and they didn't make the change after that year. So I'm not saying that Jeff Blaschel is blameless in any of this. He's the head coach. A lot of this is ultimately going to find its way back to his desk. But the, the pragmatism of making a change in season this year, guys, just is not legitimate. It's not realistic at all. Yeah, I, I'm 100% with you. You know, I- I'm with the fans, right? I mean, I, I, it's frustrating to watch this. It's frustrating to see it again. It's frustrating to see some of the same deficiencies from last year, you know, with in-zone defensive coverage, with kind of the power play not being where it's at and no change being made. I get it. It's frustrating. But pragmatically speaking, making a change in season in this kind of year with the, the COVID climate being what it is, uh, Dan Biles was certainly not being an upgrade. Uh, and the fact that things can definitely get worse. Like you have to look at the first three games. And like we were just saying, is this a Jekyll or a Hyde team? Because three of those games, you know, the wings looked good at five on five. And three of those games, they looked really, really bad. But even having 50-50 being good and 50-50 being bad is way ahead of where you were last year. I still think things can get a lot worse. 
I just it just doesn't make a ton of sense to make a change in season. Yeah, I mean, after the season when when, when Jeff Blaschel's contract is up, I think it's fair to have that conversation. But I, you know, I really just don't think he's he's been any more of a problem this season than anything else. You know, like I I think that uh, they've been pretty fine for two thirds of their games. And and so I, I just have a hard time. I, I think what it really comes down to is I think people weren't all that happy with the decision to bring him back after last year. And so at the first sight of something that looks like last year, it's reverts right back to that same feeling. And so I, I, I certainly can, can understand that. I mean, and I don't think the Red Wings by any means like needed to bring him back for this year. Um, but now that the year has started, it's it just is not going to make sense to make a change. It would have to be catastrophic, is, is I guess the answer to the question. What would have to happen? I think it would have to be catastrophic because, it, you know, the 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 realities of this year is just going to discourage it at every turn. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say. I think if you want to know, well, what does catastrophic look like, right? Because we're talking about a sixty loss to you know a team that you and I both thought was the worst team in the league. I think the only way you get there is if the players quit. Yes. The players quit on him, right? And what we know from last year is they never did. He always had the locker room support. You listen to the way they talk to him or talk about him, and it's it's very clear that he has the support of the guys there. The only way I see change happening is if he loses that support. Um, and I frankly don't see that happening based on a lot of those guys having been with him last season. I would tend to agree. All right, uh, last one, Rye Guy 7 says when a team like the Red Wings comes out and looks like they like they did against the Hawks in this in the prior season, what do you even do? There doesn't seem to be a way to get immediate help, and they've looked lifeless. Bad was an expectation, but this feels worse. Again, I, I think this goes back to a little bit of what uh, we were just talking about. With uh, but but you know, this is the million dollar question. Of course, neither of us is probably going to be able to solve the Red Wings uh, in, in ten minutes here. But uh, what do you do? What would your uh, what would your outlook be here? Yeah, I think hypothetically, let's say I'm the head coach of the Red Wings, right? You know, you, you think about there's a lot of different ways you can proceed. There's a lot of different approaches. You have the guys who want to, bla- you know, put their team on blast, you know, make them watch video, you know, do your your suicide skates uh, at the next practice if you get one. Uh, that's not how I would approach this. I think this is a team that very much understands their effort was not where it needed to be. I think first and foremost, you have to have a conversation with Anthony Mantha. You need to figure out what's going on. You need to figure out how to light a fire under him. And you need to make sure that, you know, he he's engaged and he's got his game. But then after that, you know, you kind of fall in your locker room. You've got a young leader in Dylan Larkin who's been outstanding. You've got a guy like Bobby Ryan who's a great veteran who's been a great player in this league. You know, rest on the locker room. These guys, you know, let those guys lead. I know they're frustrated. Um, but I think that's going to be your best path forward is, is connecting with your leadership team within the locker room and letting them kind of light the fire under the other guys, as opposed to putting these guys on blast. And then we have to take a step back and be realistic. What was the expectation for this team? You and I both said it, Max, this is a bottom five team, right? This was a team that still was going to be bottom five. You were just hoping you would be a closer bottom five. And again, for more than half the season, we have seen that. So, you know, I think there's nothing out of the ordinary. Yes, this was the first game that reminded us of last season, but I think it's still a, a one game sample. Regroup, rest on your leadership team and go from there. Yeah. 
there is nothing you can do to make the Red Wings a good team in this season in, in terms of like being a playoff team or a team that's not going to have nights like this. They're just it's just going to happen. Um, now that doesn't mean it's like excusable, but it, it's kind of this ultimate recourse of like as long as you respond to it, you know it, it happens. Um, but in terms of what's practical, a lot of it I think comes down to better execution. Uh, you know, it, it, like we talked about, there's no margin when you play the style that they do. But there's really no chance if you play the other style. And so th- you get into a tricky situation. So it, it asks the Red Wings to basically be far and away the hardest working team on the ice every night. And they've done that a couple times this year. And that's those are the, you know, well, at least one of the two games was the one they won. They lost the other one to Columbus. But um, that's their recipe. And so what do you do is you you cannot have anybody or at least any anybody in, in kind of that group of five or six guys that you really rely on off on a given night. Is that possible? Absolutely not. And that's why games like this are going to happen. And that's why a lot of losses are going to happen. But that's really what it comes down to is is you have to have a team that is pretty much 100% on and and then they'll look okay. They'll look like the good vibes that I got from you all after the the win over Columbus that was about, you know, how they look like a different team. And then when when that's not doesn't happen, I'm going to get messages like I got tonight about how it's 2019-20 all over again. And it looked like it. So I get it. I'm I'm not uh I'm not saying I disagree with with that uh observation. It's just there's there's practically it's going to be a game to game thing and and you will not be able to bottle it. Because it's it's not something that can happen every night. It just realistically, you cannot be at your one hundred percent every single night at really anything. And and so I think that's where this all comes to a head is that you know you, you kind of reckon with the fact that you know it's a last place team, and 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 when this happens, you're gonna feel exactly like this, and you're not gonna be wrong to. But there, it's not something that can be changed with a personnel decision, with a different line combination with a different system even necessarily. So those are those are kind of the harsh realities and this is what a rebuild is and and ultimately I think this is why when uh when you call for a rebuild management tends to be really hesitant to to engage one until it's absolutely necessary, right? Is because this is what it means, not just for this year, probably not just for next year. And so it's it's uh it's the brutal reality. Like, am I am I being too fatalist there? I mean, I don't think so. And I think it, a harsh thing to accept is the Red Wings have just simply not had a talented hockey team in quite some time. Um, I remember putting a tweet out in the summer where using the evolving hockey uh, metric of standing points above replacement, which is effectively a war model, um, but just converted to to standings points to make it a little bit more uh, easy to comprehend. I looked at just where did the Red Wings talent stack up uh, against the league uh, in each of the seasons that Blaschel has coached. And so you ready for this here? So 15-16, fifth worst roster. 16-17, fourth worst roster. 17-18, fourth worst roster. 18-19, third worst roster. 19-20, worst roster. Jeff Blaschel has not had a top has not had a roster that was not fifth worst or worse, um, and so again, it's just you have to think about it. At the end of the day, the only way this gets better is with talent, but that's not something that's going to get fixed tomorrow. That's something that's going to get fixed over years of bringing guys in, drafting well, developing well, and it's not going to change this season. 
And I don't think you're saying that to to say that Jeff Blaschel is is without uh, some some blame yes, here, yes. right? Yeah, but but certainly it it does explain the overall picture of the Red Wings. And just like that has been the case for a while, it's it's not going to flip a switch one day. And you know, to start the twenty one twenty two season, they're going to have the twentieth best talent. Mort Sider might be on the roster by then. He's still going to be a rookie defenseman. Uh, you know, Joe Valeno might be on the roster by then. He's still going to be a rookie forward. I don't think Lucas Raymond's going to be on the roster in, in uh, to start the next season. Uh, I hope that doesn't shatter anybody's visions. But, um, you know, when he arrives, he's still going to have a rookie year too. So this is not getting settled this year. It's not getting settled next year. You hope Your, your hope is that with the progress that they make, if they can cut the, these down to being less and less frequent, getting more and more competitive and keeping these games closer and closer, which is ultimately what I think is, is a successful season for them is doing that. It's that when those guys arrive, then you don't have to spend a lot of time doing what the Buffalo Sabres have done with Jack Eichel and with Rasmus Dahlin, waiting for everything to get to the point where, okay, now their talent can really be unleashed and can take them to the playoffs. You're hoping to get to the competitive point when those guys arrive so that you can kick into gear and go. And I think that's the whole thing. This year is is not about this year and neither is next year. It's all about setting the stage for when these next two, three, four prospects that you're going to pick in the top 10 or have already picked in the top 10, I should say, um, get here so that you don't have to waste a bunch of time once they do. Yeah, that's exactly it. You're, you are trying to tread water and make small steps forward as you know, Lucas Raymond, Moritz Sider, Jonathan Berggren, you know, and those guys develop, come over and start pushing this team little by little forward. And that's that's going to be the path forward for the Red Wings. But fundamentally, I don't believe there is anything you can do this season that would change the outcome. And yes, that is fatalistic. But, you know, you and I have been spot on about this last season before in our season preview. We said, what were the Red Wings? They were a bottom three team. Guess what? Worst team in the league, and this year we said they're a bottom five team, and sure enough, it looks like they're going to be a bottom five team. So I, I just think from that standpoint, you, you're you're playing for the future here. You're playing for the small wins, the moral victories, as bad as that seems. We told you at the top, today's episode was brought to you by the SoFi Daily Podcast. Turns out it was also brought to you by Arby's. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.